out there oh man i hope so go ahead stand we're going to be worshiping god hey and how about this as far as the transition is concerned isn't he sweet isn't he wonderful to you he's decided to be in this place here as the spirit was moving over the water spirit come move over
I need you. I forget how often that you come after me when I'm trying to pull away from you over and over and over again. You're relentless. You're amazing. You're wonderful. And your grace 
is more than sufficient for each of us. Father, thank you so much for showing us what love looks like, showing us what grace looks like. We do everything within our power to give that to the rest of this world. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Everybody, if you want to sit for a second, you can. Or just stand. I don't care. Whatever you guys want to do. I got to stand, so you can do it with me. You know, we, uh, we do uh, these worship services, and we come together, and we have all these purposes every time that we do. And I just want you to know this, that God has made a promise to us that when we gather together, he's going to be here. So when we talk about his presence, you don't have to wonder if he's chosen to be in this place. And even more so when we ask for that spirit to come down into each of our hearts, to come into this room and change us, he's already ready to do that for you. So now he's not saying, okay, now I'll do it. He's been saying, I'm just glad that you're acknowledging what needs to happen. And that's what's going to happen today when you give yourself entirely and totally to God. Expect him to move within you. One of, the, uh, um, one of my favorite psalms that we talk about, it's Psalm 81. It's something that's back behind me there. It says this. He's speaking from on behalf of uh, God in the midst of this. He's saying, oh, that my people, God's saying this, would listen to me. I, he says that to you too. I wish that my people would listen to me. That Israel, Old Testament, New Testament is this church. Oh, that Israel would follow me walking in my paths. How quickly I would then subdue their enemies. Have you ever thought about your enemies? Not people that you don't like, but just the stuff in your life that is against you and your relationship with God. But those enemies will be subdued. How soon my hands would be upon their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him. They would be doomed forever. But I, this is God again, he says this to each of you. I would feed you with the finest wheat. I would satisfy you with wild honey from the rock. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound wonderful? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> as great as uh, ice cream is, really, just focus in on how cool honey was back in the olden days. All right? but th it's wonderful. He doesn't just say, all right, I'll give you this, this very bare minimum. He says, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to give you a pleasant, pleasant life. It might not be what we're looking for all the time, but I'm going to give you exactly what you need, and sometimes, even more so, I'm going to give you what you want. Let's worship him with those things in mind. There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, manna on the ground, no matter where I go. I don't need to worry now that I know
All right, I'm going to need you to like lock in right off the bat, okay? I'm going to ask you a question here in just a moment, and I don't want you to just sit and listen. I'm going to ask you to think. I know that's asking a lot, all right? But I want you to engage with me here. I want you to consider the question. I want you to really kind of work through. You can listen to me talking in the background a little bit, okay? But I need you engaged right off the bat. This is going to be important, okay? Here's the big question that we're going to start with. Is God ever uncomfortable? Is God ever uncomfortable? Let that kind of ruminate. Think through if there's a context in which you can imagine. All right? And let's talk about this word uncomfortable because it can mean different things, okay? It's kind of one of those spectrum words, all right? It kind of has different meanings in different contexts. Stuff like this. Uh, this past week, uh, I went and got a haircut. And while I'm getting the haircut, I noticed that my entire body was tense. Like my legs were like tight, I was clenching my jaw, and then I realized like, like, why do I feel this way? And I guess it probably has something to do with some stranger touching my head, I guess. Like that's probably what's going on, okay? But is that what we're talking about? Are we talking about God being uncomfortable like that, that it has like an anxiety or an awkwardness? Is God ever awkward? It's not really what I'm aiming at, all right? Maybe it's something bigger. 
I've had a few moments in my life, not many, but a couple, moments in my life where I have witnessed an adult speaking in a manner, uh, either in front of or to a child that I found incredibly inappropriate. And in those moments, I felt compelled by it, right? I felt like I have a responsibility to do something. I've felt in these moments, again, not happen very often, maybe you've experienced something like this, some sort of a public setting, someone that I don't even know is saying or doing something, and now I'm in an uncomfortable situation where I feel like I have to figure out how to respond here, and I feel like I have to do something. I feel like doing nothing isn't a very good option, and it creates that uncomfortable moment. I can't can't tolerate inaction. Is that what we're talking about? Is God ever uncomfortable like that? Does God ever feel compelled to act? That something happens in his presence and he feels like he has to do something about it. We can get more specific and we can ask this. We can say, is God ever uncomfortable around sinners? A sinner enters the presence of God, does it make him uncomfortable? And, I mean, we can make it real personal. Is God uncomfortable around you? It's a big question, isn't it? Do you make God feel uncomfortable? I think this is the common context in which we view the word holiness, the holiness of God. God is holy and we are not. And when you put these two things together, it makes for this dangerous equation. And frequently we look at it as being something that makes God uncomfortable. He can't be in the presence of those who are sinners. Now let's define this word holy. It may be a new word for you or maybe you just need the refresher, okay? But holy by like book definition just means pure or different or set apart, okay? But when we're talking about God and we're talking specifically about the holiness of God, We're talking about something that's secondary, but it's a baseline. It's really actually what we're speaking of. We're not just talking about the fact that God is pure or that he's different or set apart from us. What we're really talking about is a moral perfection, that God has this perfection to him. And when we talk about his holiness, and then we perceive that in context of our unholiness, we see a God who's uncomfortable around sinners. And it seems as if, in order to protect sinners... God keeps us at a safe distance. He kind of holds us out at arm's length to ensure that, I mean, I think oftentimes from our perspective that he just doesn't destroy us when we're in his presence. Let's go back to this. A couple weeks ago, Doc preached on uh, the fall, the story of Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the world and God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. And we can ask the question, why? Why did God actually remove them from the garden, okay? And Doc gave the real answer, okay? Like, we're going to walk through a couple different possibilities here, okay? But the big answer, the number one answer, is going to be the fact that, that he's removing them from the tree of life. I even like Doc's perspective of how he spoke on, on how dangerous it would be if evil were left unchecked forever, that, that, that we need to be removed from the thing that kept us alive for eternity, all right? And so, so he separates us from that. But what if there's more to it? I think this is oftentimes how we view the holiness of God, right? That there's a sense in which we view God as being intolerant of sin. If it's in his presence, he casts it out, right? And so maybe he removes them from the garden for that reason. Maybe it's just a simple act of punishment. Maybe it's God's anger or judgment. Maybe it's just the consequences of their actions, right? But we see this idea of this God who is so holy that whenever there's unholiness in his presence, he has to remove it. 
It seems like God's punishing them in some specific way. That his holiness requires him to be apart from people. And at first glance, at first glance, there's a long list of stories that seem to back up that idea. All sorts of narratives that tell the story. Stuff like this. There's this prophet in the Old Testament named Isaiah. Isaiah is actually a pretty good guy, and he has this incredible vision where he ends up in the throne room of God. He sees God in his glory, this incredible vision thing, and when he experiences it, what he responds to is this. This is what he has to say. Woe to me. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, what's happening in this scene? Are we finding a God who is uncomfortable with Isaiah being in his presence? Does he feel threatened that that God is going to step in and do something about him being in his presence? Or is he so overwhelmed by being in the presence of God that it's as if he wishes he was dead? You see the difference. And it's important that we kind of work through this and try to identify exactly what's going on. Is God just dangerous to be around? Or is it that when I'm close to him, I feel uncomfortable and I don't want to be around him? Same with this guy named Job. Job is this long story of this guy who starts out with everything and he loses everything. And it's this long poem of of Job wrestling with who God is and why he does what he does. And Job has these friends around him. Like at worst, they're evil. At best, they're just curious and they're trying to process with him and try to figure out what it is that he's going through. But at the end of Job's story, God speaks. God speaks to Job and he gives him insight and understanding into who he is and what he's doing. And at the end of the interaction, Job says this, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has this opportunity to be in the presence of God. He interacts with him and at the end of it, he really kind of wishes he hadn't, right? I mean, which one is it? Is God uncomfortable being in the presence of Job or is it after Job interacts with God in his presence that he realizes, I don't think this is for me? I'm uncomfortable being in your presence. There's more. There's a guy named Habakkuk. He's another prophet in the Old Testament. He uh, kind of speaks up in this confident way, and he demands that God would explain himself to Habakkuk. That's an interesting thought flow, all right? Habakkuk demands an understanding of what it is that God's up to, and so God speaks to Habakkuk, explains things, and at the end of it, Habakkuk says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay, I love this, decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. In this interaction, do you find a God who is uncomfortable or do you find someone who's uncomfortable in the presence of God? It's important that we see the difference. In the book of Exodus, there's all sorts of stuff. We're actually going to be looking in the book of Exodus today. We just haven't got there yet. We'll get there eventually. But in Exodus, there's a couple other passages, things where this happens. When Moses first starts meeting with God on Mount Sinai, it's kind of strange. There's this cloud fog thing that kind of envelops the mountain. And I imagine that if I was one of the people witnessing this, I would be curious, right? I would want to try to go catch a peek, try to catch some sort of glimpse of what's actually going on on this mountain. And so God tells Moses to speak to the people and tell them uh, to warn the people so they don't force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. It sounds like like God's kind of setting a line here. Like, don't cross this line or else I'm going to kill you. Don't you dare come into my presence unless you're invited. Otherwise, it's going to end poorly for you. It seems like, I mean, you could try to make the case that God's uncomfortable with just anyone showing up. And in the very next chapter, you get the opposite perspective, where the people speak to Moses, and they say, hey, Moses, you can talk to us, and we're going to listen. 
but don't have God speak to us or else we're going to die. And it doesn't sound so much like, like God's just looking to speak to them to kill them. It sounds like they're uncomfortable in the presence of God. Which one is it? And this is important and significant that we start seeing this, I think, in an appropriate manner. See, all of these examples you could make the case are pointing to this big idea that it's dangerous to be unholy in the presence of a holy God. It seems like it's dangerous to be around God, that it may even be better for us to not be in his presence, right? We treat it that way, but I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I don't think it's dangerous to be around God because he is so dangerous, although I believe that. I believe that our God is dangerous, and I believe that he is worth being feared. But I don't think God is all that worried about being around us. I think sinners are uncomfortable being around him. I mean, you look at these stories, it seems like he's actually doing quite well every time one of these people come into his presence. I remember when I was a kid, there were these moments when I would misbehave. I know that's hard to believe, but I would have these moments, and I can remember one specific moment where my father told me that I had to go to my bedroom and wait for him because he was going to come in there and, and, and discipline me appropriately, right? And so I'm in my room, I go in, I shut the door behind me, and I get my toy box and I push it across the back of the door. It wasn't a long-term strategy, <laughs> right? It was just, it was an idea I had. Why did I do that? As a father, I can tell you that in the process of disciplining my kids, I wouldn't call it comfortable for me. And I think that's probably good and healthy, right? But as a child, as I find myself blocking the door so that my dad can't get to me, in my youthful mind, was I trying to protect my dad who was uncomfortable being in my presence? (laughs) Or was I instead intolerant of his authority? You hear the difference? That I was uncomfortable with how he was about to hold me accountable and I wasn't interested in, so I tried to create up some sort of barrier. I didn't want to be in his presence. Go back to the garden. What if it's that God removed Adam and Eve from the garden because they were uncomfortable? So twist, isn't it? Do you recall after they sinned, do you remember what they did? They hide. First thing they do is they clothe themselves and they hide. And do you remember what God did? He looked. He searched for them. Man, when, when I sin, I hide. That's not uncommon to Adam and Eve. That's what we do. In fact, one of my jobs as a pastor is to try to know you guys well enough to know when you're not here. And not always the case, but occasionally, sometimes we'll find that someone hasn't been here for a while because some sort of sin has crept in and overrun them. And so they hide. It's what we do, isn't it? And yet we see a God who looks, who comes and tries to find it. What if it's that God What if it isn't that God is uncomfortable or that he's intolerant of sinners? What if it's that sinners who are uncomfortable or intolerant of a holy God? Changes how we view him, doesn't it? Doc and I were talking about it this week uh, in, in this kind of a context. People who are far away from God tend to view themselves as being more worthy or more good. When you don't have a good, close relationship with God, all you have to compare yourself with the people around you. And you can look around and find people who aren't as good as you and you can make yourself feel pretty good. But when you get really close to God, you start recognizing how ungood you are. You start realizing how unworthy you are. Your unholiness becomes more and more plain, more and more clear. And the closer you get to God, the more 
comfortable you get. I think that's what we see in these examples of the Old Testament. I think that's what we see within our own lives. And it seems to me like the entire Bible is this story of grace and specifically how God is working to bridge the gap between himself and humanity. When sin enters the world, we're separated from God. And, and sometimes we have this perspective as if God has pushed us away because he can't be in our presence, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I think it's that we've sinned and we're uncomfortable in the presence of this God and the whole Bible seems to be the story of how God's trying to get back to his people. I told you we're eventually going to get to Exodus. We're almost there. All right? There's this incredible story, this incredible pursuit of how God is trying to dwell with his people, how he's trying to be with them. And it starts in Genesis that we looked at last week when Doc preached on the story of Abraham and God comes to Abraham and he tells him, go to this land that, that, I've, that I've planned for you. I'll let you know when you get there. And God doesn't necessarily specifically say it, but he does kind of insinuate, I'm gonna tell you when you're there. I'm, I'm with you. I'll let you know when we find the right place. When Abraham dies, his son Isaac becomes the patriarch of the family. When, when Abraham dies, God comes to Isaac and he reinforces the promises that he'd made to Abraham. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold those promises true to you. And then he makes a promise to Isaac. He says to him in Genesis chapter 26, I will be with you. Significant. In Exodus chapter 3, when God calls Moses, at this point in Moses' life, he's best known as a murderer and a fugitive. It's a grace in itself that God would come and speak to him. But when he does, when God calls Moses in Exodus 3, and Moses has his questions and concerns about how he's going to be used to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, God calms him and comforts him with this phrase, I will be with you. Significant to me. When the Israelites get out of Egypt and they're traveling through the desert, God is with them in the form of clouds and fire. He's this pillar of cloud during the day that leads them. He's this pillar of fire at night that protects them. And it seems like God's doing everything he can to be with his people. God wants to dwell with his people, his sinful and unholy people. And so God does what probably we wouldn't. He decides to build a tent. Now, that doesn't sound real, I don't know, appealing probably to most of us, all right, the idea of building a tent. But at this time, the Israelites, they're nomadic people in the desert. They live in tents. They're moving around. If, if the cloud of God moves, then they, then they pick up their tents and they move and they follow. And so God decides he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to live among his people. He wants to live in the same neighborhood that they do. And so he starts putting together some designs to build a tent. It's a mind-blowing thing. And behind it's this big idea, God can't dwell with sinful people, but God desires to dwell with sinful people, and so he has to figure out how. So he starts these designs. It's from Exodus chapter 25 to 31. It's seven chapters of instructions on how to build a tent, all sorts of detail, tons of detail and instructions on what it should look like, what it should be made of, the furnishings that should exist in it. He, he talks about specifically the, the, the crafters that he wants to use to do all of this work. And even within it, there's a space to offer sacrifices. Because I think that if God lives in your neighborhood, then you probably want to have a good relationship with him, don't you? 
And so God knows that if I'm going to live in your neighborhood, you're probably going to be pretty uncomfortable about me moving in next door. And so he creates this process of sacrifices, ways in which the people can deal with their sin, a way that they can be made worthy in his sight, a way that people can feel comfortable when they're invited to live next door to God. And all of it is set up with this one verse. It's in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, where God says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. The heart of it all is that we have a God who wants to live with his people. Now, interestingly, we have these seven chapters, Exodus 25 to 31, where all this is taking place, but at the exact same time, there's something else happening in Exodus 32 to 34. It's the same time that they're happening. They're coinciding at the same time. Moses is on the mountain receiving these details and instructions on how to build this tent from God, and it takes him 40 days. This is a detailed detailed organization, all right? Moses is gone for 40 days. The people grow impatient they think maybe God's killed Moses and it's time for them to move on. And so they do something wild. They decide to design and build their own God. It's a story of the golden calf. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to go and read it. It is among the more sad and, and uh, depressing stories in all of Scripture. How quickly they turn from God. How quickly they mess things up. And Moses comes down and finds them worshiping something that they themselves had created. And when, when Moses finds them and, and God is aware that this is happening, go, Moses and God are having a conversation in Exodus 33, and God actually says to Moses that he doesn't think he can, he can actually live among his people. He said he's worried that he might just destroy them. And it seems like maybe God is intolerant of sinners. And then Moses presses God, and God kind of seems to relent. It's one of the weirder stories where God, like, actually changes his mind because Moses has something to say to him. It's very strange. And when God does change his mind, Moses sees that as an opportunity for more. And so he says, God, I want to see you. I want to see your presence. God promises that his presence is going to be with Moses. Moses says, I want to see it. I want to see your face. And then Moses, uh, God says, no, you can't. No man is going to see me and live. You can't see who I am. It would kill you. And it sounds like God is uncomfortable or that he's intolerant of sinners. But again, it's, it's a weird story. It seems like God changes his mind. Seems like he allows some sort of concession and he allows Moses to see his back. And so Moses goes, or God goes by him. He lets Moses know. Moses sees his back and it's, it's terrifying. And it seems as if maybe God knows that Moses would be uncomfortable or intolerant of a holy God. Don't miss the depths of what's happening in this story, Okay? God wants to design a tent. He wants to live and dwell among his people. And for seven chapters, he lays out this design and what it should look like. All the while, his people are busy worshiping some other God. I know how I would respond to that. I think you know how you would respond to that, right? He designs a tent. They design and build an idol. And so God just decides to build a tent. He just goes on with the plans. The next six chapters of Exodus, going to the end of the book, is where these designs that God had put into place are actually then built and put together. 
The crafters step in, they gather the materials, they go about actually building a tent, and it culminates in this. In Exodus 40, at the very end of the book, one of the very last verses tells us that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the, the place that God had built, this tent, they called it the tent of meeting, that God builds this tent of meeting, the cloud covers it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see the weight of what's taking place here? Do you understand the depths of what's taking place? Preston Sprinkle puts it like this. He again wrote a book that we're using a lot for this series. Uh, this is a quote from him. Help me out. Next slide. There we go. He says, God could stand at the gates of heaven and forgive the Israelites. He could clap his hands. He could mutter a chant. He could fold his arms and nod his head. And if he willed it, the Israelites would be forgiven. There's lots of ways that God can forgive. Okay. There's lots of ways that God can forgive and be able to move on. And there's all sorts of things that he could have done. But notice this, God could show them leniency or simply accept them unconditionally and he would give them a type of grace. God forgive them and give them a type of grace, but it would not be the stuff of the Bible. And it's this word charis that we keep talking about. It would not be charis. I want you to catch this. Oftentimes we think about the forgiveness and the grace of God and we see it as this thing where he does just kind of nod his head or, approve, or, or do whatever is necessary to just wipe out our sins. But that's not the story here. There's something much more significant going on. We're talking about a God who doesn't want to just forgive. He wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with you. There's something heavy and significant happening here. We can't miss this process. God wants to dwell with his people. His people try to dwell with anything other than God. And so what does God do? He dwells with his people. He's going to move in anyways, right? Yahweh, he desires to relate with his people. His people absolutely mess it up. They offend him. They disrespect him. They dishonor him. They sin against him. So what does Yahweh do? He reaches down and he relates with his people anyway. Same for you. God wants to relate to you. And you push him away. But he insists on relating to you anyway. You see, God is not fragile. He's not easily repelled. He cannot be pushed aside. He is not interested and walking away, God's presence in this cloud of glory now resides with his people. He doesn't live outside the camp anymore. There was this time when the tent of meeting was outside a camp, and that's where God would go to meet with Moses. He doesn't live there anymore, and he's not the, up on the mountain on Mount Sinai. God's not there anymore. It's not in the cloud at the front or the fire in the back when he kind of lived in the periphery of his people. Something significant's happening here. He lives among them in a house just like theirs. If you pay attention, you'll smell Eden. It's not the same. It's the desert. It's faint. It's not, it's not equal, but there's this sense that Eden is getting built and put back together. Where what God had created had been destroyed, and he's putting the steps in necessary to bring it all back together. And if you look closely, it's not just about the past. It's a glimpse of heaven. A promise of a day when we will absolutely dwell directly with our God. Last week, Doc said it this way. He said, God isn't looking for a way out of his promises. 
I love that. He made these promises to Abraham. He didn't even make Abraham make promises back. And then Abraham messed up the stuff that God had made promises to, and it didn't matter. God just keeps fulfilling his promises. He just gives us more grace. Again, another sprinkle quote, he puts it this way. He says, the charis of God, the grace of God fiercely pursues wicked people. Charis stubbornly delights in repugnant rebels. God's charis moves him to descend with joy into the tent so that he can be in an intimate relationship with his image-bearing, albeit calf-worshiping masterpieces of creation. I love this. There isn't anything that we could ever do that would cause him to back off. Oftentimes, when a, when a preacher gives a sermon, at some point he's going to tell you what to do with it, right? I'm not going to give you any homework this week. Nothing to do. I just want you to believe this. Can you imagine how much this would change your life? If you just believed that God is consistently trying to get close to his people. That you believe that there isn't anything that you could ever do that would cause God to lose interest in you or to give up on you. He desperately wants a relationship with you. And the entire Old Testament is this story of how God's people keep trying to live apart from God. They will literally worship anything else. And God keeps trying to live with them. And it culminates with this guy named Jesus. One of my favorite things about Jesus when he shows up on the scene is he's given all these names. And one of my favorite names for Jesus is Emmanuel. We talk about it a lot at Christmas. It just means God with us. It's the same story. It's the same purpose from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of God trying to be with us. Jesus' very last words in Matthew chapter 28, just before he ascends, Jesus has died, he's rose from the grave, he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. One of the very last things that Jesus says to his followers is, surely I will be with you always. It's a story. You have a God who desperately wants to be with you. He wants to dwell with you. And there isn't anything you could do that would make him feel any differently. It's powerful. That's why we come to the table every single week. It's because we have a God who would do anything to bridge this gap, even, even offer up his own son for our behalf. That sacrificial system that we see in that tent that God builds and instructions on how it should be done, it's fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. And it's what makes us stand as righteous in front of our God, not because we are, not because we're even approaching holiness, but because of the work of Jesus. And so we come each week and we take the bread and we take the juice and we celebrate who this God is. I hope something stirs in you every time you do this. That you recognize the extent that our God has gone to to dwell with his people. And when we do this time, it's not even just about recognizing what God has given to us. It's how we respond in giving back to him. And so if you're a part of the family here at Cap City, you'll notice these offering boxes that are brown uh, wood here on the tables. Those are places where we give to be able to give and honor him back for what he's done for us. And we have our generous buckets as well. It's an extra thing. If you're new to Cap City, that's probably unique and different for you, but that's just an extra place. If you want to give something extra, that's stuff that doesn't go to anything here within our church for budget or anything else. That's just how we bless people in our community. But I want to invite you to come to the tables and interact with this God who seeks to dwell with you.
Amen. Would you have a seat for just a minute? I hope today's been a great day of worship for you. And I hope that maybe as you were singing that song, that, that maybe somebody came to mind for you who you need to share that love of Christ that you have experienced with this coming week. And I pray that, uh, that God will open that door for you to be able to do uh, just that. Just a few things before we let you get out of here this morning. I just want to say thank you to our church family. Uh, during the month of July, our nudge was to collect shoes. Uh, yesterday, there was an event held over at the Bondurant Middle School for the turning bare feet into learning feet. Uh, there were over 360 pairs of shoes that were given out to kids here in our community, and Capital City provided 300 of those shoes. And I'm so thankful to you for your willingness to give and to support. So many wonderful things that are going on here in our community. August is going to be back to school, and so we're going to be asking you to help with school supplies. You'll hear more about that over the next week or so, so just keep your ears open for that. I know we ask you to give a lot uh, uh, throughout the course of the year, but this church has always been so generous with that. And we're, we're extremely grateful to you, and, and we'll be giving supplies to the schools uh, that have a need for students uh, that are a little less fortunate. Hey, over the next few weeks, you're going to hear us talk about this idea of next level. And what we're going to be talking about there is this idea that we believe we as individuals and as a church corporately need to go to the next level in our worship, in our connection, in our growing, and in our serving. And we've got a great opportunity coming up here over the next few weeks to, for us to go to that next level when it comes to serving here at our church. Uh, you've heard us talk before about these all-hands-on-deck events, and we have one of those coming up here in just a couple of weeks, and that's going to be our Jesus Prime. It's actually a little less than two weeks, August the 11th. And so this is Eric Miller, who I've invited up here on stage with me this morning. Eric and Hello. his wife, Anita, have been worshiping with us for... 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. We got, man, that's, yeah. that's hard. 2004, we moved here. Okay, awesome. And uh, they have two beautiful daughters, Priya and Serena, who are involved in our student ministry, and we're just thrilled to have them. Uh, but I, had, I asked Eric to come this morning just to share... I got some questions I'm going to ask him about Jesus Prime, uh, that, that just to get his input on it. Okay, so so when you first heard about how we've been doing Jesus Prime, I think we were talking this well. This is our 11th year coming up. I think yeah, that we've been or doing 12. They 11 said 11 or 12 years. 12. You've, you've been involved. How many? Do you remember? Uh, 12. I was you, here in 2004, so I'm assuming you you've yeah. been involved from the get go. I'm guessing so. Okay, so when you first heard us talking about Jesus Prime. Uh, what, were, what thoughts ran through your mind about that and getting involved in that ministry? Yeah, I, I really thought any way I can uh, be involved, usually I'm involved by cooking, usually with Robert Brewer and J.C. Young, and I was like, yeah, I'll jump in. And then they're like, oh, we want you to be a safari guide or an escort. And I was like, ooh, uh, i never done that before. But uh, looking back on it, I wouldn't do anything else. I can't wait. Good, good. Now, you know, we, we, we have used that term escorts in the past. This year we're having the Lion King Safari, I think what it's called. So Simba and Mufasa, I don't know if they're going to ask you to dress up like one of the Scar or something like that, maybe one of these. Who knows? I hope so. You know, oh, kind of thing. Um, but, you know, when, when you first started, the, okay, so Jesus Prom, we're inviting guests from our community who have disabilities, whether it be mental or intellectual. And so what, what thoughts ran through your mind when you heard, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to help with somebody who has those kinds of disabilities. What, what ran through your mind that? Sure. For me, it was pretty simple. I'm blessed to have a job that I work with people with disabilities each day. Um, but I understand that could be a concern. Um, the staff here is great. They actually will pair individuals. So if there's um, someone that has a more severe uh, disability, it'll probably be paired with someone that either has been an escort or safari guide or someone that has experience. So don't worry about that. Jump in. Um, it's going to be great. So at, at the end of the night, you've done this 10 or 12 years now, at the end of the night, what, what has been on your heart, on your mind? You know, it's just a feeling I really can't describe. Um, I just 
would say do it um, because it's just this sensation that you get that God is in this place and then you've been experience, or been able to experience with this person um, something that they really will cherish. Cool. So, so anybody who's here this morning who maybe not have done this, they've heard us talk about being a safari guide. Uh, what would you say to that person that's like, well, I'm not sure I can do this. Maybe, maybe I should, what would, what would you say to somebody like that? You know, really just do it. Um, it's one of those things. God opens up doors, um, and we just have to have the faith to walk through it and trust in him. And it, like I say, I promise you, you will not regret it. It will be an experience that you just will love for the rest of your life. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir. So, so there you go. If you've been thinking about it, you've been wondering about what, what all is involved with it, uh, this morning at the, they've already had a, a training going on, but we're going to have another training that will start at 11 o'clock in the Connections Room. There are these uh, Jesus Prom cards that are at the Welcome Center. If you could help us out, we still need probably 75 to 100 safari guides for Friday night, August the 11th. Uh, we're going to have you work from about 5:45 till about 8:15. Uh, you're going to be paired up with someone. You'll just you'll pretty much stay on this main floor. The the game rooms across the hall, the student worship room, the connect the uh, cafe or snack bar is going to be out in the lobby, the connection area, and then in here will be just this huge dance party. And so we would love for you to help us out with that. Again, let's take our let's take our service to the next level when it comes to Jesus Prime, okay? Hey, our worship team's got one more song. If you want to stand and worship with us, if you need to slide on out. And don't forget, it's ice cream Sunday. So let me get out first before you guys, okay? Let's have a great day of worship. Yeah.